The years have all passed, we've reached modern times The Nazis have come with their Nazi war crimes Yes, the power was there, the power was found Six million people have heard that same sound That old knock on the door, knock on the door Here they come to take one Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be finishing my look at A Charmed Life by Mary McCarthy. Um, And I'll actually be finishing up this volume of Mary McCarthy's writings from the 1940s and 1950s. There are some stories included in here, but I really couldn't get into them. So I just didn't feel them. Like one is actually quite interesting, I thought. It's called um, The Friend of the Family, which is more of an allegory, but it's a very political allegory about how we deal with fascism. And, you know, maybe I'll talk about that later on in the series. But, you know, I'm just, I really couldn't get into these stories at all. So there's eight of them, and they're essentially all of Mary McCarthy's short fiction included in this volume. Instead, I'm going to go and just jump into the rest of her fiction, starting with The Group, a very, very uh, important novel in the second wave feminist movement. It was published in 1963. In fact, it seems like Mary McCarthy... um, if you just look at her fiction, wasn't writing that much, but she did publish other stuff between uh, A Charmed Life, which was 1955, and The Group, 1963, including like some of her memoirs and some of the work she's famous for, you know, in describing her life growing up as a Catholic, you know, her memoirs of a, of a Catholic girl. Uh, the short story collection that's included here is called Cast a Cold Eye, and that is four stories and then four vignettes that also became part of her, her memoirs. So, but anyways, I, I'm sorry. I just, I'm not, you know, I just really couldn't get into these stories or didn't feel I had too much to say about them. So I don't think anyone is going to miss them too much. Um, you know, I'm actually, I'm not sure how many people actually follow or, 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 or know that much about Mary McCarthy anyways. But I'm going to jump to the group, which is a very important book. It, ha- it has an adaptation, a, a film adaptation, uh, came out in 1966. Very, very crucial novel and talking about things like birth control and uh, marital rape and, and domestic violence and and uh, the career opportunities for women. All these things are really on the cutting edge of, of 1960s so-called second wave feminism. And Mary McCarthy was right there. That book was on the bestseller list, list for like a few years. It was so influential to that circle. Um, it covered that circle of activists and, and just women of that era, even ones who weren't that political, because it spoke to their issues. It spoke to their their life. Um, and said in the 1930s, it didn't just talk about the lives of women in the 1960s. It talks about the things that women have been dealing with for a long time throughout the 20th century, not just it wasn't something new. Right. Um, that that came up, like access to birth control, such a big one, such a huge thing that that liberated women. So I'm really, really excited to talk about the group. Um, it, it follows eight women. I mean, there's a lot of characters, but we don't get to spend that much time with any of the characters because there's so many of them, and the novel with only 300 pages doesn't give us that much time with each character, but they all have really distinctive identities and, and challenges in the context of, of the modern woman. So a really, really great novel I'm looking forward to. So if you have access to that, I encourage you to 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 read ahead. We're going to spend about three episodes on that. Then we're going to look at her last two novels, uh, Cannibals and Missionaries. And what was it? I, I forget what the last one was called. Um, maybe Cannibals and Missionaries may be the last one. I'm forgetting one in the middle. But we'll do her next three novels and then move on to our next 20th century 
woman writer. In other news, I've been uh, considering, you know, how to get the rest of the Library of America series. I actually pulled, printed out the catalog, printed out the list of, of books they have, and I think they're up to like two, three hundred and twenty or so. And I, I figured out there's about one hundred and sixty-five or so that I still don't have. So I don't even have quite have half the series. I, I think I did for a while, and then I stopped buying them, and then, then you know, whatever. Um, but I, I'm actually thinking of going ahead and, and kind of just purchasing the rest of, of this series. I'm not going to do it directly, though. I'm, I'm going to look on the used book market. I mean, a lot of those, especially the earlier volumes, the first 200 or so that were published, you can get on the used book market sometimes for two, three bucks a piece. So it may be a piecemeal project, um, but I think I might just go ahead and over the next year or two buy the rest of them. And then that will kind of give me a lot more options of what I'm going to do in the 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 series and actually just looking at that list and, and i kind of knew a lot of the stuff was published but just kind of having it all in front of you and looking at it and studying it it's really kind of amazing what the library of america here has has done and and hopefully will continue to do not that i want to advertise too much for them i just think it's a great um kind of effort to to kind of collect this american canon you know all in one place in one series and kind of open it up and that's I think the great thing if it was just taking the old fogies that we all read in high school it wouldn't be that important but that the fact that they're expanding the canon to journalism to ecological writing to um, minority writers right I think the only thing that's not really well representative are Native American writers uh, I saw there was a volume there just of anti-slavery writing we have of course the slave narratives that's a whole volume which you should look at at some point but just the anti-slavery writings and anti-war writings and and you know i'm sure we're going to get at some point uh, the writings of the new left or an anarchist writing book i mean there's it's endless right there's so many ways they can go not just by printing the work of great authors but by you know taking genres i think there was a two-volume series of women crime writers so it, from the 20th century maybe i should pick that up for this series uh, a little sooner than I was planning on. I don't know. I just think it's a really impressive achievement of of, of Americana. Something I, I appreciate more and more the longer I, I stay abroad. But anyways, um, on to A Charmed Life. A Charmed Life. So as I talked about in the last episode, this book is really doing two things. One is it's, it's kind of getting into the life of this bohemian artistic village, this, this kind of suburban town, and and kind of look at these academics, but also look at them in the context of, of, of kind of a 1950s suburbia, right? That, that, that they're not really able to escape that. I think that's something Mary McCarthy struggled with a lot in these works of the, of the you know, she, the things she wrote in the 40s and 50s is, is intellectuals, really kind of, I, I almost want to say intentional communities, but that's not quite right. I mean, the Oasis was an intentional community, but communities of, of people who are kind of special in some way and have some kind of identity, whether it's professors or in this case it's like the artists, bohemian artists in the Oasis, it was kind of countercultural intellectuals and others it's communist intellectuals. Whatever that might be, these are people who set themselves apart from mainstream culture. In that sense, they are kind of countercultural, right? They, they are almost by definition countercultural. And then show them as basically falling into the same social patterns that everyone else falls into, the same pettiness, the same often brutality, the same um, self-centeredness, on and on in that way. 
And I think that is just what McCarthy does so, so well in, in these books. And she does it really, really well in The Charmed Life. And one reason I like the first half of The Charmed Life is just you just get to simmer in this community. You look at basically three different couples is our focus, and you see their interrelations. But it's just about their life and the different characters that live here. And, and there's some great ones. I think the, the one we're introduced to in Chapter 6, this guy, um, Gray, what's his name, uh, Sandy Gray, what, you know, he just is a character, right? This kind of very educated philosopher, a writer, but he walks around like like doing yard work dressed like a Australian guy from the Australian Outback or something, right? And then you have Miles, the typical overbearing, tyrannical academic, right, who will say one thing in terms of philosophy, but, but at the end of the day is just another brutish patriarchal figure. Um... You have Warren, the artist, trying to play with new new ideas, but is very, very conventional in, in, in his life. I mean, that's, that's, I think, maybe the best kind of summation, actually, the character of Warren is a great summation of, of, of maybe the best of, of what McGarry McCarthy thinks this type of people can be. In the sense, radical intellectuals, really great thinkers, right? At one point in the novel, it's even suggested that he is the archetypical genius, um, in part because he's so mundane. Right? That is only through this mundane character can you be, uh, can you be a true genius, right? The people who are just too weird in their personal life can never quite reach reach that achievement. You know, he's just sitting there painting all day, and and achieving kind of a brilliance. And he's doing all that stuff with four dimensions and trying to get quantum mechanics and that bring the atomic age into art. It's really great and interesting stuff. But he's basically a square, right? But he's the one who's able to do heroic things in, at the climax of the novel. Um, now, that's the first part of the novel, and I think it's, it's a great summation of a lot of what McCarthy was trying to do. Um, and I already see kind of a break up with her you know, interest in the 60s and the interest here. I think um, very, very different kind of set of politics, you know, in the 60s than, than here. I, I, you know, I'll get more into that. You know, there's a continuity of sorts. Um, certainly, she's interested in women's rights and women's freedom and, and how women can achieve autonomy in, a, in a, essentially a patriarchal world and a world defined by men. Um, but, you know, the issues in the group are so much more concrete and political. I'm going to have to get to that um, when I talk. I don't want to get too much ahead of myself and, and jump too much into the group. I'm just loving it. I'm, I'm not that far into it, but I'm just gobbling it up with, with a lot of pleasure. Anyways, focus on this. That's the first half. The first half is this description of the community. The second half of A Charmed Life deals with the, the actual plot of the novel. I mean, all the plot happens. If you pick this up in Chapter 7, with it, you may not know the characters so well, but essentially all the plot of the novel happens in the, in the second you know, half, in the second hundred pages or so of the novel. Um, and it's a really quick story in a lot of ways, but it's, it really packs a punch. And I like it. I, I've seen a lot of people online kind of complain about this novel, but I think it has a lot to, a lot to like. And it, yeah, it's maybe not her best, and and maybe it does meander a bit. But all of her novels sort of meander that way. Even the Oasis, which is really short, you're just kind of sitting there, characters doing nothing, just chit chatting. Um, but it's in those encounters, it's in those conversations that that McCarthy's having her her most fun. All right, without, you know, I don't think we have to recap too much because not that much happened. Essentially, Martha and John, they move back into this town, New Leeds, where she lived before with her husband, Miles. He, she left Miles for John, but she wants to return and they want to reboost their career. She's a playwright. 
He's a historian. They meet uh, Warren Coe, who's an artist. His wife is is from a rich family and, and kind of supports his artist career. Miles lives there with his trophy wife, and and Martha's cousin Dolly, who's a virgin, uh, unmarried. She's an artist too, and she lives there as well. And she meets this guy, Sandy Gray. There's this other character, the Vicomte, who who's kind of like just a fixture in the community and kind of a uh, an interesting guy, um, but yeah, the, the, like I said, the second half is where the plot comes out, and and maybe she's trying to do two things, and maybe both have their faults. But I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed this novel certainly, um, much more so than the short stories. I don't know. Usually, I like the short stories more than the novels when I read authors. I, um, these I just could not, uh, you know, I just could not get into. Anyways. Chapter seven. Chapter seven uh, focuses actually on on Jane Coe, Warren and um, Warren Coe's wife, and it focuses quite a lot on her domestic life. This is actually a really interesting critique here of of the domestic life of of this character. Um, you know, even things like technology and how technology influences suburbia in this time. Something. Uh, we certainly know about and something we think about when we look at the history of technology in America, you know, the labor-saving device, for instance. But, you know, she's, she's a housewife, essentially, and she's from a rich family, but here she sort of has to take on these domestic burdens. Um, and in that sense, she, she kind of, she does what kind of like the Catherine Beecher thing. I, I, you probably haven't read Catherine Beecher, maybe you know a little bit about her. She was... Of course, the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, the one who wrote *Uncle Tom's Cabin*, and Catherine Beecher, although never married, she wrote the like her her major work was a treatise on domestic economy, where she argued that women, if they really want to have power in the family, they have to take control of of the domestic sphere, right? And, she, and it should be almost a scientific, educated process. You know, everything should be done, in, you know, the proper way. Um, uh, so you know that archetype of the of the matriarch of the family who's controlling every aspect of her kid's life, making sure everything is cooked on time, cleaning the certain the proper things on every Saturday, whatever it might be, you know that's the Catherine Beecher approach, and then the idea is to really take control of this realm for women, and then that will be the foundation of, of women's power. It's it's interesting. She never married, so she never really had to to live this life herself, but um, she was. You know, she helped a lot of women, I guess, in her, her study of this. I haven't actually read Traitors of Domestic Economy. I just read about it. But anyways, um, this is what uh, Mary McCarthy writes about this. Quote, labor-saving schemes of one kind or another played a large part in Jane's thoughts. It was something she had inherited probably from her inventor grandfather. Warren said that her bump of inventiveness is very much enlarged. Recently, she had been pondering putting in some sheep to act as lawnmowers around the house and fertilize the ground with her droppings so, so that sometimes she could have a vegetable garden. According to the latest theories, it was better not to weed. And she had heard of places where if you sent the sheep wool, which came back woven into blankets. That's what got her started. She and Warren needed some new blankets. Um, really interesting. I mean, she's a really creative person. And we, we learned that in this chapter, just how creative she is. And this creativity really comes to a peak at the climax of the chapter when she runs into a, a crisis and, and, and is forced, essentially, or, or put in the position where she, she has to essentially lie to her husband as much as it might um, disgust her to do it, as much as she might hesitate to do it. 
But first we have to get through a whole discussion of her chores and her daily life. But it is a good window into suburbia. And another reminder that just because you're in a bohemian community doesn't mean the, the typical gender division of labor doesn't, doesn't predominate. Um, John and Mar Mar Martha are a little bit different because their house is still in kind of a disrepair from the, the previous tenant. They spend a lot of time doing basic repairs. Um, anyways, what happens is uh, Jane picks up a telegram which says her, her mother-in-law died, uh, Warren's mother. And Warren's going to have to go back to Boston for, for the funeral. And she doesn't want this to happen because if she has to, you know, she doesn't want it to disrupt uh, basically a poetry reading. I, they're going to read Berenice by Racine, uh, like some kind of classical work that I never heard of before. Uh, in fact, one complaint of the novel is Chapter 8, which is just kind of a reading. It's a reading of, a, of this play within a novel, and it's kind of boring. Um, but maybe someone who really is into classics or, or wants to talk about how the classics influenced American thinkers at this time or these artists and intellectuals, great, run with it. But I was bored out of my skull with, in that particular chapter. But the lead up to it's great, um, lead up to that chapter, because Jane is in this position where if she gives Warren the, the telegram, that's going to disrupt the whole party she's, she's, she's planned and she's going to host and she, doesn't, she just doesn't want that. So she comes to the decision and she thinks it through how can she basically hide this from her, her husband for like 24 hours. That's the key, right? And she has to think through all the different contingencies that might happen, like might Western Union call the house for a follow-up or whatever. Um, she figures out no, and she basically makes this decision to, to lie to her husband. And it's, it's a big decision. It's apparently the first major lie she's ever um, inflicted on him. It's kind of a, an infidelity of sorts. And this is contrast, I think, to another infidelity we get by, by Martha, the one we expect from the opening page of the novel. We, of course, expect, we know Martha and Miles are going to have at least a tryst, if not sort of get back together, um, you know. And she does, neither of these women feel guilt about their, their, their essential lies to their, their husband. And both of their lies have, have severe consequences, actually. Um, um, more or less than the one leads to the other. Like the, if, if she would have told Warren that, you know, your, your mother died right away, that would have probably ended their party. She would have had to leave probably and go, go with him. And that party would never happen. Miles and Martha never would have got together. Um, and it would have changed everything. It would have, it would change the entire setup. I mean, there's so much rest on when Martha and Miles gets together, the exact day of it. It's so crucial to the rest of the plot. But anyways, chapter seven is a real doozy. Chapter seven is a lot of fun, and it just gets really into the nitty-gritty of, of, of what it's like to be a housewife in a place like New Leeds. Um, and, and then we see this kind of revolution in, in Jane where she, she commits this, she commits herself to a, a pretty big lie. I mean, not telling your husband right away that her mom, you know, his mom died is a kind of big deal. It, it's kind of... You know, it could be offensive to some people that that she's so flippant about her mother-in-law's life, and she is sort of. She she kind of says, well, you know, he's not going to get there in time anyways. It's you know, it's not a big deal if it's just a few hours later, and telegrams are always late, and and she makes all kinds of excuses, but she finally convinces herself that she's going to do it. 
she justifies it in various ways as well, saying things like he's he's a bit of a bore anyway, so she kind of wants to play a little trick on him, that it might be good for him to to keep it from him, so he's not going to be too distraught right now, or whatever. Um, you know, she's got it all worked out though in her mind. You know how she can excuse it and and how it can work into her plan. So she's going to wait till the next day to to tell him the truth. Um, so that's chapter seven. I love this chapter. One of my favorite in the novel. Chapter eight. Chapter eight is that very very boring reading of of Berenice by by Racine, and yeah, it's all these people getting together, talking about Racine chit-chatting about it, doing their little asides about it. Um, yeah, I just found it incredibly, incredibly boring. Um, a little bit of character development in a few, well, character moments, I guess, not really character development, but a few character moments here and there. But the, the real thing that happens here, of course, uh, John's out of town. He's off doing something else. He's, he's not there. So it's, it's Martha and Miles alone. And that, that's, this is setting up this... The events of chapter nine um, but yeah chapter eight is kind of a throwaway chapter in my view unless you really are into the classics or Hamlet or, or, or want to have these conversations there Martha or Mary McCarthy is kind of good at these she does these a lot but this is she's done it better I think in other works and you know I much rather enjoyed like the conversations about Trotskyism or some of the conversations about Joyce we saw in the Groves of Academe um, there's just better the there's better examples of this kind of intellectual conversation in some of our other works i think this this is just kind of really tedious in my view maybe it's just how i feel about is, is racine a roman or a greek who even knows so anyways i'm just going to skip by that skip by that and get right on with the story chapter nine chapter nine is miles takes martha home and she invites him in and they have sex, and it's it's a very short time before John comes, so it's a quick little tryst. It's it's a quick tryst, like on the couch, and it's it's described fairly explicitly. Um, she's going to continue that fairly explicit description of sex, which she did in um, the company she keeps. She does it here. She does it in the group as well, quite a lot. So she doesn't shy away from just very um, open, frank conversations about about women's sexuality, about about sex itself. Um, so they have this this long expected trust the the, the 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 encounter that everyone was expecting would happen right. now as far as i can tell and i'd have to look back and, and think through this moment by moment this is the first time they've had this opportunity to do it because his house is off limits because there's the wife and the kid there so it would have had to have been a moment when martha was alone at the house without john and i don't think that's happened yet so this is, it may be late in the novel, chapter 9 of 13, and it's, it's fairly late in the, chap, in the novel when this happens, but I think it's actually the very first moment when they could have had this, um, could have had sex, and, and they take advantage of it right away, which makes me believe that maybe they were always really destined to do this. I, I obviously, you know, anyone who reads this knows this is coming, I think, even if it wasn't spoiled for you. Now, the sex itself... Uh, yeah, Miles is a is a creep, and he's gross, and he's kind of violent and pushy, and and he's not at all polite about it. He he's just taking what almost like what he thinks is his and his his right to take, 
And we know, we know from the flashbacks that he was a violent husband, that he was emotionally abusive, and we assume he's doing that to his new wife, who he's bored by on top of everything. Not only does he have these strong patriarchal sentiments that he brings with him into that marriage, he, he doesn't think much of his new wife. Um, yeah, this is all, it's kind of um, just getting it over with almost. Like, it's like they're going to, it was going to happen, so they do it, and he does it in a very, um, kind of nasty way. It's it's not it's not the best reading <clears throat> if you're looking for like an erotic moment. It's it's pretty cold and and and, and harsh. And I I think it's well described in that way. I think Mary McCarthy does a good idea of, of kind of making this tryst not only it feel inevitable because we feel coming the whole way, but there's nothing romantic about it at any point. There was you know this relationship was always kind of toxic and. You know, this tryst doesn't change that. It, it's still a gross, toxic relationship based on uh, maybe some some memory of something. Uh, I think a lot of it is based on kind of Miles's overbearing, abusive attitude. I think, you know, it's almost like you almost get the sense of an abused woman coming back to her abusive husband, right, at a time. But there's there's not even flowers in this case. It's all, it's all pretty harsh, and then it's all rushed too because he's coming soon, so they have to do it. He has to, she has to clean up, and he just kind of leaves without saying, saying too much, and and he kind of drops off of the story after this point because he's kind of performed his purpose. He's he's deposited sperm, which is an important plot point, and then he's out of it, out of the story for um, pretty much until the climax when. He doesn't. He hasn't learned anything from this encounter. He hasn't become a better person. Obviously, there's no reason to think he would be. But yeah, this is the moment you're waiting for, and it's pretty, pretty hard reading. And after the fact, here's what we get. Um, quote: Miles had not enjoyed it much either. Martha said pensively to herself as she picked up the beads from the parlor floor. It had been like an exercise in gluttony. They had both grasped for a morsel that they did not really want. And now she did not feel especially bad for what they have done. But she did not feel especially bad for what she had done. Now that it was over, it appeared to have been inevitable. She had thought it all out while she had been lingering in the bathroom, dousing her face in cold water to sober herself up and hoping that he would leave so that she would not have to talk to him again. She had brought it upon herself, she supposed. She ought not to have asked him in, knowing there was a risk, even as they stood by, stood in her doorway. Yeah, um... Yeah, the same kind of regret we get in the man with the Brooks Brothers shirt story. And, and alcohol is involved in both of them, too, and the, the regret after the fact. Now, the rest of the chapter is really kind of bizarre because she had expected John to be home. She cleans up. She gets everything. You know, she, she hides all the evidence. So, and she's waiting for him to come, and he doesn't come. He's late. And she starts to panic. She starts to freak out. Thinking he's got a car, he's had a car accident. A little bit of foreshadowing there, and the the fear of a of a car accident, almost like kind of an uncanny kind of foreshadowing. She is really terrified by that, and he seems to be just a few hours late. It seems I don't know if the whole affair with Miles kind of put her on edge and and bothered her, or if she thought she'd be having some kind of cosmic punishment for for the affair. Although she never feels guilty. For some reason, if she does have any guilt, it's expressed in her, her anxiety over John's failure to return on time that night. Um, 
you know, she, she goes to ask around about him and, and they tell, tell her just to kind of relax. And eventually he gets, he, he does come home at the end of the chapter. And, and that's that. But it's kind of revealed. Other people seem to figure out that Miles and her had a thing. So the cat's out of the bag in terms of that. Of course, not a surprising thing. This is something that happens in these communities. These are people who've been married two, three, four times. These are people who don't really take marital fidelity that seriously, it seems. Um, now, anyways, chapters um, six, no, sorry, seven and nine both have a wife in some sense betraying her husband um, and not feeling guilty about it, feeling that it's, you know, it had to be done for, for whatever reason, for different reasons. And I just think that's a kind of an interesting parallelism but between them, right? Obviously, for in human cultures, it's women who have had the expectation of monogamy. You know, that's the way it's been for, for, for all of human history, right? That, that, that monogamy double standard is certainly a very, very true thing. Um, some cultures do better at sustaining that, uh, not, not kind of falling into the monogamy double standard, but, but many do, and historically most societies did. And, and that's, you know, in, in the modern world, you know, women have gotten enough power, either through economy or political power or whatever, social power, to, to be the betrayer a little bit more, right? They're not locked in homes necessarily, and they, and they feel no more guilt than the men usually feel guilt. That's my point I, I'm trying to make, is the men who went off with the concubines or whores didn't feel they were betraying their wives. wives. They just did it and went on with their life, right? And, and there's no reason to presume this, that, that women should feel more guilty for doing things that men do all the time to their wives. That, that's the point I'm trying to make here. And because none of these characters do anything that husbands haven't been doing to wives for, for many, many years, lying to them, hiding information from them, cheating on, uh, on them with other women, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I hope that's clear. All right, moving on then. Um, chapter 10. Um, chapter 10 is a little weird kind of side quest in the novel. And um, we've previously we were introduced to Dolly and introduced to this Sandy Gray. And we know Sandy Gray is on like his fifth wife and he's divorcing her. And so what this is, is a very, very interesting, again, it's really a side quest. I don't see how it fits into the novel. Maybe it's another critique someone could have in the novel that this just seems out of place. I think it does, but it's enjoyable. It's a fun out of place thing. And basically Dolly's brought to the court as a character witness for Sandy Gray during this divorce uh, hearing. And there's all the other witnesses there and they actually sort of hang out because it's a long trial and they're just like waiting around. So they're chit-chatting. They have like dinner together and drinks together. And it's kind of almost like a little party. And it's presented as so commonplace because these are people who keep getting married and remarried. Each time they have to go through a ritual like this with the courts and, and, and have the hearing and have a judge make a ruling on everything. Um, if you live in a no-fault divorce state, maybe you would uh, feel lucky that you don't have to do this. As, as many people still have to go kind of go through this legal procedure whenever they get um, whenever they get divorced. And it's not pleasant from what I heard. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a little society here among the witnesses and in the court. And, you know, people are given performances and they're being judged about how good their performance is. It's all sort of a stupid game, and, and maybe it's a microcosm of, of this society that, that Mary McCarthy is trying to describe here. Um, this is in chapter 10, quote, 
Waiting for him to come back, the courtroom grew very restless. Some of the witnesses wandered out to smoke and fraternized with the enemy on the courtroom's house steps. The consensus, as reported by the man in the white suit, was that Sandy was going to win. Dolly's testimony, it was agreed, had done him a lot of good, and Clover had queried her own pitch. Had queered her own pitch. Her tears and accusations gave the truth away, and yet no one seemed satisfied. The thought of the children closeted in there with the judge who was going to decide their fate seemed to weigh on the witnesses' spirits. Um... Yeah, I mean, this is a serious matter. It's deciding where the kids are going to be and who's going to have custody of the kids. It's a serious matter for the kids, but it's it's kind of entertain. It's almost like entertainment. That's the sense I got when I was reading this. Now the judge sort of is going to kind of see through all the baloney though, and and, and um, just grants Sandy visitation because he's been divorced many times. He deserted a wife, you know, and just the the. All the evidence suggests that this Sandy is not the best person for the kids or whatever. So, you know, it kind of just ends with that. But it's a really great chapter describing this ritual of the of the custody hearing, right? And how it becomes like almost entertaining for people and it's a time for people to perform and show off. And it's a lot of fun. I like it. I, 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 I enjoy these little additions into, into this story. I think this novel, although mostly about Martha and Miles, you don't even need that drama for this just to be a fun romp through a really, really weird community. Now, in Chapter 11, things begin to pick up a little bit. Martha finds out that she is, is pregnant. She basically finds out she's pregnant. She starts out with the signs, like the sore breasts and, and all that. And she asks around for help. But she basically eventually has to go to the doctor and finds out that she's pregnant. Now, eventually, the doctor who you know, figures out she's pregnant and does the test or anything, she confides in him anyway. She confides in this doctor that she had an affair at one point. And he says, well, when did you have this? It's a, it, The nice thing, this doctor is, is essentially good. Uh, and he doesn't judge Martha too strongly. Now, this is still at a time abortions are illegal. And so, you know, he can't help her that way. And his advice is basically to have this kid because there's nothing else, because the alternative is a criminal risky procedure, right? But he does say, like, you know, the time you had it, which apparently was just after her period, you know, you probably weren't fertile. And if you had sex with your husband ever after that point, it's like a one out of a thousand chance that this guy, it turns out Miles, obviously, is the father. So he's pretty sympathetic. I think this, this, you know, I was expecting a doctor to be much more judgmental. What I've read about doctors in the 50s, yeah, about women in terms of trying to get birth control and, and about abortions and things like that, that they're just not a very, they're not very nice. They didn't seem to be very nice. And it took the sexual revolution in part to change doctors' attitudes about things like birth control or whatever. Um, but this guy's fairly nice, but he does say, like, don't have an abortion because it's, it's illegal, essentially. Um, Now, the irony here, of course, is that Martha has wanted to have a kid. She's wanted to have a kid with her husband, and that's one of the reasons where she hopes that, in addition to moving to New Leeds, having a kid will help salvage and save her relationship. And, yeah, that's apparently not going to happen. Um, at least since she's right away thinking on abortion. She just cannot imagine a life with... A child that might even be a small percentage of a chance to be to be Miles's. Like that's how much that that makes her sick. 
Or she has a kind of weird fantasy at the end of this chapter where she sees a, a young girl um, who is pregnant. Now, of course, Martha had a pre- uh, an abortion earlier. I think I didn't mention that in the last episode. She had an abortion earlier in her life, like in her college years. And that's one reason she thought she couldn't get pregnant. Again, it's because in those days, abortions weren't as safe as it'd become later. And sometimes it did lead to long-term, more likely to lead to long-term consequences in, in terms of fertility. Um, but she sees this pregnant woman who seems, she just kind of imagines that she doesn't want the kid. And she thinks about, well, maybe they have adoptions or something. And then Martha has this perverse fantasy that she owes this girl an abortion. Like she should have an abortion on her behalf if she can't have it. It's a really, really weird thought. And, you know, is this the kind of, you know, Mary, Mary McCarthy had a very, very active sex life. She lost her virginity at something like 14. Uh, many, many lovers. She was married a few times. She had affairs during her marriages, right? And I don't know details about her her experiences with abortions. I, I, I didn't read, like, every line of the chronology, the biography included in this volume. But I wouldn't be surprised. And this thought really struck me. Um, Quote, the quixotic thought occurred to her that she owed this girl an abortion if she was going to have one herself. But it was not so easy as that. The girl's figure boldly announced that it was far too late. And in any case, to get the money for herself would be as much as Martha could could manage. Um, you know, It's almost like a feminist argument maybe at this point, a, a question of solidarity, right? Of, of women standing up for the right to have this control over their reproductive lives. Um, you know, maybe that's what Mary McCarthy is trying to do in this novel is to argue for uh, women's right to choose almost in a time when women didn't have that right. You certainly see that more in the group, that novel, where there's much more overt politics about women's sexuality. But then I don't know if you would finish the novel the way you would if that was your point. Maybe the ending is just morbid to be morbid. I don't know. Um Anyways, chapter 12 is mostly about, she's already made the decision essentially to have the abortion. There's no way she's going to keep this baby if it's a very small chance that it's Miles's. So it's mostly about how she's going to afford to have it. She can't really talk to John about it. So she ends up having to, to ask around. And Warren, basically, Warren's the good guy. Warren's square, but he's always there for people. And he's, he's the nice one. And he comes through in the crisis. And he says, okay, I will, I'll get the money for the abortion. That's like $700 or $600. Not, not cheap. Not cheap. It was, of course, illegal at that time. So where is he going to get the money? Well, it turns out that, remember, uh, Miles bought that painting of Martha from Warren for 1800 or At least that's what he said he was going to pay, and he hasn't paid yet. So Warren says, I'll get the money. You'll get the share of that. No, no, no problem, right? There's something kind of poetic about that too, right? Because she was the inspiration for that painting. So he goes to see Miles, and then they just have a throwdown. You know, Miles like refuses to pay. He kind of says something like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll pay you," and like, kind of, "Where's my checkbook?" kind of thing, or you know, "What's what's how things look next month?" You know, kind of like playing the bill, bill the game you play with bill collectors, and you know, the checks in the mail, kind of those kind of games. And Warren says, no, I need the money now. And and that's when Miles starts berating him and calling him like basically an idiot and a square and, you know, really nasty stuff, right? We see his, him at his worst. Um, well, we guess we saw him at his worst when we got the flashbacks to his relationship with Martha, but we certainly see him in a pretty despicable place in 
at this moment. And this is how we leave Miles. This is the last thing we see of him is just basically chasing uh, Warren out like, you know, like he's a tax collector or something, you know, after, after you know, trying to rob you. It, it's really, really gross. And, you know, obviously they don't go directly to Miles asking for the abortion money, right? Um, I, I'm not sure why they don't. It, it seems Miles is rich enough that, and he wouldn't have won a scandal or whatever, but maybe just because of the relationship between Martha and Miles, it wasn't going to happen. So she tries this roundabout way, and, and Warren very interestingly tries to use the money from this painting to, to get the money. It's a catastrophe, though. It doesn't get work. And then chapter 13. Chapter 13, our, our final chapter, eventually Warren doesn't lose hope. He, he tries to find other ways to get the money. One is he calls his father-in-law asking for money. And, and eventually, though, he gets money through kind of some kind of scheme with the, with the Viscomp. So that character we met before, who also kind of seems like a good guy, but a little bit weird and another alcoholic in the community, they, they find a way of, of kind of, you know, a sneaky way to get the money available. So Martha has the money for, for the abortion. Um, she, and then very abruptly, I mean, the novel's near the end. There's like two pages left. She has the money. She's decided to have the abortion. She's going to drive up to, drive up to, you know, Boston or somewhere to have this abortion. And she's on the road and she gets hit by a car. And her last thoughts are essentially, that was stupid to be driving around in the late afternoon in New Leeds. You know, obviously, you know, if you're trying to avoid a car, you got to remember they're drunk on the other side. So basically, the joke at the end is everyone drives drunk in New Leeds, and you should have known better than driving at that time of the day. And she dies, and and that's it. The novel just abruptly ends with her thinking about like basically what her obituary is going to say. A pretty tragic ending, I suppose. But um, I could see how this ending might set people off because she doesn't do anything really wrong. I. I She's not being punished for anything. It's not a tragedy in this, in the kind of the Greek sense, where characters do things and are punished for it. Yeah, I, I don't really know the point. I, I think if if this wanted to be a novel about abortion rights, then then I think she deserves a happy ending in a way. I mean, she's and she, there's nothing to punish her. It's it's kind of absurd, and and maybe that's the point Mary McCarthy is trying to make. I don't really, to be honest, I don't quite know what to make of this ending. It it does sort of bother me that this character is just kind of snuffed out um, so ingloriously. It's all foreshadowed. I mean, certainly the drinking has been foreshadowed before. The the danger on the roads has been foreshadowed before, and we've seen Martha feel anxious about John driving at night. So. You know, it's it's all there, so it's not surprising in that way. But it just seems an abrupt way to 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 end the novel, it, and and not very satisfying. I don't I don't think it had to end that way, and I don't see the purpose for it. That's my criticism of the novel, I guess. Is um, while I liked getting there, I liked every moment of the novel as as an enjoyable experience. I didn't really see how it ended I, I mean, maybe that's how life is right we're just going along doing our stupid stuff and eventually we get knocked off heart attack or whatever hits us and then it's over maybe, I mean maybe that's how it is and, and she's just being true to life in that sense but in terms of fiction it doesn't fully work for me 
But wow, there's so much to love in this novel, A Charm Life. Uh, the New Leeds community, all the characters are interesting. The, I mean, a continuation of McCarthy's look at odd kind of set apart communities. I, I mean, I think that's really where she excels in, this, in these novels, in this book, is taking a people who set themselves aside, mostly intellectuals, and, and just how petty and ridiculous and useless their lives really are and, and how close they are to suburban banality. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful how she's able to, to, to paint the pictures of these, these communities. Um, I think there's, there are some politics here on, on feminist politics in that we see women doing what men have done to women for, for centuries, for thousands of years, and not feeling guilty about that, right? Not, you know, usually the guilt would be there in the novel when you read these, right? Now, men, you know, who knows? Maybe the guilt would be there, maybe not. Often it's not. But, you know, if a man was writing these, these, I, I, you know, I have to believe if it was like a conventional male writer was writing this story this way, he'd have Jane feel bad about lying to her husband or she'd have Martha feel bad about the affair and, and maybe come and confess one day and, and there'd be tears or some melodrama about that. None of that's there. She doesn't feel guilty for a second for sleeping with Miles. And I think that is great. I think that's a wonderful, um, just turning on the head, the politics of fidelity and, and, and marital monogamy and, and, and those issues. Um, it's just dealt with really well here, I think. I, that's what I love about it. Um, some really great intellectual culture here too, even though that one chapter bored me, uh, the one with Racine, I think there's other elements of, of like talking about philosophy, talking about ethics, talking about artistic culture. That's great. Um, the courtroom scene is a lot of fun. So yeah, I think this is a worthwhile novel to, to read, to spend a few hours um, di dissecting and, and taking a look at. So anyways, that, that does it. Um, like I said, I'm going to put away this volume of Mary McCarthy's writings. I realize there are two more. Uh, or there's, there was enough for two more episodes, eight short stories. But I just, I'm not getting into them. We'll see how I feel when I finish the second volume of Mary McCarthy's writings. But if I don't do a few short stories, I think you know, the, the podcast gods aren't going to punish me for that. So, um, but let me know what you think about any of these issues, about um, Mary McCarthy, about if you know anything about her life and how it connects to these works, or if you read these works and have your feelings about it, um, let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I will, um, my next work, the next thing I'll be looking at is The Group by Mary McCarthy, and we'll do three more novels by Mary McCarthy, which will be the second volume collected by the Library of America. Um, and then we'll, we'll see where the series goes. Jane Bowles, probably. But it's going to be a while till we get there. So we're going to stick with Mary McCarthy for at least another seven, eight, nine, nine episodes. I'm not quite sure. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my thoughts about A Charm Life. Uh, let me know what you think, and I'll, I'll see you next look time. Look over Thanks the oceans, listening. look over the lands, look over the leaders with the blood on their hands. And open your eyes and see what they do. When they knock over their friend, they're knocking for you with their knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come to take one more with their knock on the door, 